This is a Federal News Network podcast. It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. Today is Friday, June 3rd, 2022. I'm James Hewlin from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. Today I'm joined by a panel of guests from our law firm, Shaw, Bransford & Roth. We're a federal employment law firm here in Washington, D.C., and over the last few years we've seen so many new and evolving legal issues during the COVID-19 pandemic. Be it from remote work to remote investigations, a lot of change is occurring. During today's show, we will discuss what we are seeing and what we think is here to stay. So let me start by introducing my colleagues. First, we have Connor Dirks. Connor is a partner at the firm where he has practiced law since 2013. He also authors the legal brief in the Federal Manager magazine and case law updates in our sister newsletter, Fed Manager. Connor, it's good to have you. Thanks, James. Good to be here. And next we have Michael Scarlett. Michael is an associate here at the firm where he's practiced since 2015. Michael authors case law updates in our second sister newsletter, Fed Agent. Actually, Michael and I do the Fed Agent updates uh, every other week. We do. Thanks, James. It's great to have you with us. Um, some of you listeners may remember that earlier this year on Fed Talk, the three of us got together and had a conversation about the top 10 most impactful cases on federal employment issues um, from 2021. And so uh, we're gathering again here today to talk about our slow emergence from the pandemic. We're going to talk about these kinds of big ch- changes that have occurred in our practice of law as litigators representing federal employees. Uh, we'll talk about um, the actual changes that have occurred in the process, how that's impacted representation. We'll talk about the sort of substance um, shift that we've seen in the last uh, several years, how the pandemic has shifted uh, the subject matter of what we do. And then we'll talk about uh, lasting issues, things that we think are gonna stick around. But first let's um, let's tell the listeners a bit about our law firm. Sure, we're a federal employment law firm, a boutique law firm. Um, and what we do is we represent federal employees in all the things that can happen to you at work, whether it's an administrative investigation, uh, Office of Inspector General investigation, an investigation by any federal entity, really. <laughs> um, and also, um, if that goes poorly, uh, to a disciplinary action um, and appeals to those disciplinary actions as well. Security clearances, we, we do it all. And, you know, one thing that I love so much about what we do is we work directly with um, people affected by these actions and often in the most difficult circumstances and in position they've ever been in their life. Yeah, you know, you, you left out one of my favorite categories Sorry, that we do. <laughs> I actually really enjoy the retirement work. I like helping people through the retirement process and learning about them um, at the end of their careers. You know, what have they been doing uh, throughout the federal um service and and then helping them in any number of different unique uh, processes to get them the federal retirement they deserve. Um, And of course, we represent people all across the country. Uh, We're litigating attorneys. And so we represent people, right? And um, we, we try, we have in years past traveled all over the country. Um, I've had the privilege to go to some really great places in the United States that I I would not have previously gone um, the reaches of Montana and, um, the deserts in California. I've been down to Georgia. Um, kind of, I mean, recently you had um, some interesting experience in Texas. I say yes. recent, but it was a couple years ago. Yes, not that recent, um, which I know we'll get to. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, I'll save I'll save the story for uh, for when we're talking largely about how how things have changed. But I uh, I, I may have you know, committed some atrocities with regard to butterflies. In the past. <laughs> I'll. Uh, <laughs> keep the listeners on edge till till we get there. You know, I miss people coming back to the office and sharing those kinds of stories about being out and yeah. about um, 
representing clients that matters and the you know, stuff we get into um, on those travels. Uh, you know, in addition to, to representation work, we, of course, at the law firm do, um, as you mentioned, the two newsletters. There's the Fed agent newsletter, Fed manager newsletter. The attorneys here, as I mentioned, we do the case law updates. So we help brief the federal uh, community on the cases that come out of the various courts and administrative fora, uh, the impact their rights and um, you know entitlements as federal employees. Uh, we're also doing a webinar series, uh, doing a series of trainings every quarter now um, to better inform federal employees about how they can defend themselves, about how they can pursue things on their own behalf. The, the next one I'm coming up on is on security clearances on June 29th. So if anyone out there is applying for security clearance or under investigation or you know during your re-up, um, you can tune in on the 29th. Yeah, and, and we get you know we get calls all the time from people who want to, you know, want a question or two about their security clearance process. So probably a pretty good opportunity to uh, get that information without paying a lawyer to uh, look <laughs> at all your documents. Right, right. So I mean, the long and short of this is we, we know federal employment. We represent people all across the branch, uh, the executive branch of government, um, some, some a little more than that. Um, so I, I think we're really well positioned to have a, a good dialogue here today about the big changes that were brought on by the pandemic and what's going to stay. So as we all know, uh, back in March 2020, um, those of us who work in offices, you know, had a day in the middle of the month where we all eventually said farewell to our coworkers and thought we were going home for two weeks. Yeah. I, like, yeah. Well, but, and then I I had coronavirus two two days later, so you know that was fun for me. So I had a personal connection to the <laughs> to the end of our office experience. And then everything changed. Uh, I know us here at the law firm, we stayed home for. Gosh, it's tough to remember. We were on a hybrid model for a while beginning, I think that following summer, but you know, it was probably another year before we we're back fully in the office, um, you know, five days a week. Right. And sometimes more. And we yeah. were home full time for over a year. Right. So we personally experienced these transitions from in in the office work environment to suddenly becoming remote and dealing with all the jarring changes that took place. And I, I know that in the employment issues that arose in my work in the months that followed, like I really identified with some of those clients. Absolutely. And some of those conflicts and controversies that their cases brought on. Um, all right, um, well, we'll stop here before we start getting into the substance of today's show uh, for our first break. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network, and we will be right back to continue the conversation and talk substantively about this new world of investigations that we're entering, the changes in the processes uh, that the government is using to investigate and to initiate actions against federal employees. So see you on the other side of the break. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm James Heelan, and I'm here with my colleagues from the law firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett. Now let's get into it and talk about the new world of investigations um, brought on by the pandemic and the, the things that we think are going to stick around with us. Um, to give some context, you know, while many federal employees uh, have been in a position to need employ uh, employment lawyers like us, um, I'm sure many of the listeners have never been part of an administrative investigation. So, Connor, could you talk to the listeners about what the world was really like before uh, March 2020? Sure. Yeah, to, to understand the present, you have to understand the past, right? <laughs> so, yeah. um, before the pandemic, I, I think you know, there was kind of two major ways the government conducted investigations, just on a logistics level. And the first was obviously in person. And for very serious investigations, you have administrative investigators hauling in a you know, variety of witnesses. And then, of course, the subjects of the investigation, they ask them a bunch of questions. Um, obviously, 
if you're the subject of an investigation, um, that that's a situation where you probably want to get a lawyer. Um, I, I'd suggest us. Um, and then the you know the other way, <laughs> the other way is uh, of course if it's something you know you see this sometimes it's a a, a marker of, of the seriousness of the investigation, and sometimes it's just uh, an issue where the investigators are geographically in a, in a different place. But the other way that these investigations occurred was over the phone, um, telephonic. Um, and, you know, you have, you know, right. I mean, yeah, it's presented as just either in person or telephone. I'm thinking back to my first, uh, you know, eight years of seven years of practice here. I didn't do a video interview. Never, never. It very rarely, actually never, just never. I never saw a video interview before March, 2020. I had, um, and even then it, it was sort of a sort a slow process before you saw it pop up yep the government was kind of still stuck on the telephone thing for a while right i remember i did um an mstb hearing or two that involved like it was called vtel it was agency specific video teleconference software and it was a mess and it was really complicated and hated it and it was on the tv very importantly it was on a television well i don't know if you remember it was on a television they would wheel a television in Mm-hmm. to the hearing room um, and bring witnesses in uh, over TV in front of an MSPB judge. Yeah, yeah. it's so retro. It's almost like, you know, the classroom teacher bring, dragging a TV to show an <laughs> instructional video to the students. Except in this case, when we brought the TV in with the witness as an attorney um, doing examinations, witnesses did not like it. it didn't no. like that I couldn't see the person's whole body. I couldn't read their body language. Um, and I'm sure plenty of agency investigators out there had similar reactions to suddenly having to make that switch. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit better than the telephone, right? Um, but not all that much. So, you know, those those are the really the two major kinds. And, and like Michael said, we never saw video at all. Um, and one of the, I guess, benefits of that is that when they were in person, you know, their, their lawyer was there with them a lot of times. So you have everyone in the same room, right? The attorney, the subject and the investigators, the questioners. Um, and you pick up on a lot more, um, both as the employee who's the subject of the investigation. And also when you're, you're the lawyer in the room with the investigators, um, you can see a lot more of what's going on, um, and read body language. And a lot of that's lost now, right? You can literally read the room. Yes. Anytime we could have a lawyer in the room, we wanted our lawyers to be in the room to see what investigators' reactions were, to see when they were scribbling notes. <laughs> Not to give away the secret uh, ingredients <laughs> to the sauce, but yeah, what were they taking notes on? Um, where were they looking at certain times? What exhibits were in front of them as they're asking questions? Um, you know, especially when you had to have a lawyer travel. Um, to go represent someone during an interview, we always said, you know, it's a, it makes a statement on the employee's behalf that they're taking the investigation real seriously and that they yes. are, um, whether, whether it's out of their own pocket or through uh, an insurance policy that the agency probably doesn't know about, um, they have, the, you know, the weight of, of willing to being willing to finance on having a lawyer present. And so right. that, seems to have had an impact in some cases. Yeah, and, and there's, you know, there was of course the added benefit of, you know, getting to know not just the person, but getting to know their surroundings. A lot of times these interviews take place in the person's office building. Right. Um, uh, if you get that, you know, if it's something that has a physical element, kind of scouting the scene beforehand, um, I know, James and I'm sure Michael too has had cases where the layout of the office is important in some way because it's a dispute over what happened where and when. Um, it's funny you say that, Connor, because just last week, um, you know, I, you know, I'm not in person in interviews right now because the government's not doing them very often. But um, just last week, I had a client draw out a sketch of a conference table and the layout of the room and scan it over and send it to me. That's right. And it's, it's just one of those things that now that we're, you know, not traveling because the interviews aren't in person um, and you, you, you miss that a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
And then of course, in so May 2020, everything stopped. And it, from my recollection, it took several months before any new investigations began. It seemed to me that everybody in government had something more important to do or had other priorities to immediately address um, before doing most kinds of administrative investigation. Sure, like gearing the entire workplace to be remote um, kind of took right. precedence over you know, the lingering investigations that were on the docket. Yeah, I would say March, April, May of 2020, you know, it was mostly um, phasing out of um, old investigations that you would, that we were already involved in before the pandemic really hit the um, workforce. Um, and then, you know, after that is when I started seeing, you know, investigations with new content, new material being investigated. So maybe that summer of 2020. Yep. Right. And then, uh, you know, tell me if you agree or not, but once these video style investigations began, people took to them pretty quickly. Yep. Well, I think it took a minute for the video to really kick in because, um, you know, there's probably a lot of like technology and stuff that the workforce just didn't have at first. And, you know, laptops, a lot of the workforce probably didn't have um, government. I know for a fact, a lot of my clients to have government issued laptops and sometimes they didn't come until September. So at first, I think it was still a little bit of the telephone interview. But then, um, you know, once the whole workforce was equipped with the proper tools for video and the investigators knew that they're equipped with these tools, you know, you saw a change in how things were really being investigated. So Michael, as a attorney, you know, representing people, how did you um, experience that pivot? How did it affect your legal practice representing folks? Well, so, you know, the video itself was, was kind of a funny thing to adjust to because as um, an attorney, I always tell my um, clients, hey, take a break when you need a break. You can take a break now, you can take a break then, you can take a break whenever you want. But then um, a lot of the times, you know, I would give them my, my, my cell phone number to call me during those breaks. But, um, you know, you, you have to freeze the screen, you have to freeze your mic. There's a lot of nerve-wracking. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of technological humps for me to get over to be able to, you know, strongly advise my clients on um, where we're at in, in certain interviews. You know, you can't kick their leg. Not that I would ever kick my client's legs. You, know? you should still hire a firm. But, um, but but, no <laughs> but, you know, passing notes, things like that, you know, you, you didn't see that you weren't able to do that, um, you know, once the landscape changed. Right. There there was less of that um, communication with the client, both, yeah. uh, non-verbally and verbally during the interview experience. There was also a, a big change or struggle, I would say, um, when it came to exhibits, when it came to investigators. Oh, showing witnesses documents sure you know it an in-person interview obviously uh, the witnesses handed a packet of like a three-page long email they can flip through the email and read the whole email and read the whole thing at once but i've had uh, and choose what they're reading yeah and choose <laughs> what they're reading <laughs> i've had agency investigators be rather rigid uh with my clients and you know just choose to screen share and then show them one thing one sentence at a time one paragraph right and, and i've had instances where the client you know was well prepared and would say well would you please scroll through the whole document so that i can read it before giving answers about it I had a couple investigators um say no answer my question now and then we'll get there yeah wow. so that was difficult i i think more recently however investigators have been more willing and understanding and sometimes they even um will email documents ahead of time or contemporaneously with the questions for us to look at. I've had that experience as well. I think at first I actually saw more of investigators emailing documents, I think really just because they didn't know how to screen share. I don't know. But, um, you know, once, once they started screen sharing and not showing full documents, I always told my clients, Hey, make sure you announce on the record that, you know, you, you didn't see the whole thing. You just saw this one little sentence. Yeah, there's one really important thing that, that has come up a few times, which is that the outset of these interviews, um, you get advised of your rights. Um, and that's usually on a piece of paper. And yep. that piece of paper says whether it's 
a compelled interview or a voluntary interview. There's a big impact on, you know, whether there's a potential criminal element to the investigation, whether you're, right. you know, waiving your right to silence. Uh, so, so it's a really important document to review carefully. There's, you know, what we often call magic language um, that as lawyers, we know what to look for. Uh, but when you just see a screen share of it, usually they'd give it to you, you read it, you sign it. Now I've had a few times in, uh, you know, inspector general interviews where they just flash it on the screen and you look at it mm-hmm. and then everyone, you know, wants to move on. Um, and so that, I mean, it's something that has such a big impact on, on your rights as a, not, not just an employee, but a citizen seems like a, a, a bad casualty of the pandemic. Right. You know, I, I don't want to make it sound like all these changes were negative because some of them are certainly great. Being able to do remote interviews, I think, has in many ways enhanced um, my personal ability to represent a great number of clients. You know, for some clients, it wasn't financially feasible or um, within sort of the, the time parameters they had on their issue to get a Washington, D.C. lawyer out to Washington State or to Idaho um, et cetera, et cetera. But now, you know, uh, an employee could re- retain me and I can get them up to speed in fewer number of days than before. And of course, at much less expense to the client. Yeah. yeah well, we all miss the open road. Sometimes it, it just wasn't, you know, it just isn't financially feasible for someone. And I think it also makes it more challenging for agency investigators to really see behind the curtain and size up. Uh, the client's, you know, financial willingness to follow through uh, with representation throughout Very the whole points. process. Yeah, there's also that that kind of before and after interview small talk time that investigators often use to, um, when people are unsuspecting, uh, pose some questions to them um, that seem off the record but really are not. So uh, that elimination of that has been nice too. That that those kinds of um, you know shenanigans. Uh, I, I know I promised that I would tell the uh, story about the butterfly, <laughs> right? But and you know, I, it saddens me to even think about it. But uh, so this is a good thing that, about not traveling anymore is that uh, if you're driving through Texas um, from San Antonio down towards the border, and there's a migration of butterflies traveling over the highway, you and every 18 wheeler on the road is not uh, splattering and, and carrying the guilt of that, of, of that forever, which I, <laughs> I certainly do. I never um, saw the photo, but I asked to see it. Yeah, I, I did take a photo of the grill of the rental car uh, after that. Uh, so I'll, I'll share oh, it with you, James. But it's, yeah, yeah, it's it grizzly. It's disturbing, really. But you also, that was a very important trip for you because absolutely your client, if I'm remembering the story correctly, your client had an issue um, related to border entry. That's right. And so you were able to, to physically go down there yourself and experience a border crossing. And, right. And, and see the, the layout of the crossing as well. Right. And that aided your representation. And mm-hmm. I've had similar experiences where being able to go into the client's workplace or um, the great outdoors where um, some law enforcement activity occurred was really uh, beneficial. But I, I do think there is plenty of upside to this remote um, scenario that we're experiencing. I do expect that it's going to continue. I think... It's made, you know, travel for investigators, the amount of time they, you know, sort of uh, burn and just processing um, has reduced it. And so I think, I think remote investigations are here to stay. Great. All right, we got to stop here for our second break. When we come back, Connor, Michael, and I will continue this conversation. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. 
Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. One team working all three branches. Judicial, legislative, executive. Judicial. SB&R employment attorneys offer specialized legal representation for federal managers. Legislative. Lobbyists in government and public affairs advocating for corporate clients. Executive. Produces two free weekly newsletters, Fed Manager and Fed Agent. Shaw, Bransford, and Roth is your one destination for all three branches of government. Online at shawbransford.com. SB&R. Client-focused. Results-driven. Welcome back. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. We're just entering the second half of our show with Connor Dirks and Michael Scarlett. Of course, I'm James Heelan, and the three of us are all current attorneys at Shaw, Bransford, and Roth, discussing emerging personnel issues in the pandemic workplace. In our last segment, we talked about changes to the process pre, during, and now emerging post-pandemic. Uh, we're going to talk this segment about the substance. Um, how has the actual the, the conflicts, for example, at issue in our work changed over the course of the pandemic? Michael, what's been your experience? Yeah, so James, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the government was kind of slow to pick up new investigations after the pandemic yeah. originally hit. And I, that directly impacted sort of delayed investigations as well. And, you know, I would say up until maybe the spring, sorry, the, the, the fall or the winter of 2021, so really not that long ago, a lot of what I saw investigated, being investigated was were cases dating back to 2018 to, or, you know, 2019. And then I would say, you know, after the new year is really when I saw new content and, and allegations that um, arose throughout the pandemic starting to be investigated. Yeah, I, my experience has been similar to Michael's, which is that for the majority of 2020 and, and part of 2021, you had, whether it was administrative investigators or inspector general, um, kind of catching up on, on, on their backlog, uh, like we all did uh, when we couldn't go out anymore watching Netflix. So the, you had a lot of people being investigated for things that happened some bit in the past, and all of a sudden they're, they're isolated and at home and not with their colleagues, and they have this big thing dredged up from the past. It could, I think it was really disorienting mm-hmm. for people. Right, and it eventually reached a point where the substance of the investigations also changed. You know, right. for the listeners who maybe missed our first segment, here at the law firm, a lot of what we do is represent federal employees in disciplinary actions and adverse actions um, for allegations of workplace misconduct, harassment, and the like. So, Connor, how did you see the substance of allegations of change or evolve over the course of the pandemic? Uh, you know, it's funny. There's there's this kind of thought that you would start out um, in the pandemic and everyone is on their own all of a sudden that there would have been this big groundswell of issues with telework and stuff like that. I didn't really see that. Um, But instead you had a lot of those kind of more technical audit like investigations occurring where you review a bunch of documents um, and it was easier for investigators to collect that evidence uh, rather than the kind of interpersonal things that happen when people are in the same place. Um, and then as we've gotten kind of further along and some federal employees have returned to the workplace on a part-time or full-time basis, you know, some of the old favorites come back. Um, but in a different way. But in a different way. In a different way. There's uh, the, the hostile work environment investigation, um, which, of course, everyone, everyone knows what that is or at least has heard the words before. Well, it's a... Um, it's a- kind of investigation that can take place in any federal agency anywhere in government. That's right. And it's it's a pretty common refrain, but it's when, you know, there's someone has an issue with with their situation at work. Um, but that the kinds of issues like Michael just said can be really, really different. Um, and, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of it was how people were communicating with each other over email or over Zoom. Um, you know, being embarrassed in front of their colleagues over Zoom or uh, a strongly worded email that maybe was too direct. Or micromanaging work. Um, I still see a lot of that though, um, by, you know, allegations against supervisors managing, micromanaging work. Um, 
or, you know, for in terms of harassment, I, I've seen allegations of supervisors not being able to oversee their workforce and then sort of hostile a hostile work environment still being spread out throughout, you know, underneath them, even though, you know, they're not getting direct reports from their subordinates like they used that they may have used to receive. Right. Uh, talking about hostile work environment, it used to be in the pre-pandemic workplace that was so-and-so is not including me on a meeting or I'm the one person they don't say hello to when they come in in the morning. Yep, gets um, inside eye there. Right. Or, you know, they, they gave uh, a talk to the whole office. And then when they got to the part about, you know, abusing telework or about making sure everybody punches in at such and such time, they looked at me and now my colleagues know that it's me who was the problem employee. Right. I mean, certainly there are also far more serious allegations, um, but the ones I just described all changed. Yep. They, they all changed to things like uh, my supervisor sends me e emails late at night and I find yep. that intimidating or their very direct hurt language in their emails is frustrating or and those are the kind offensive. Those are the kinds of missives that a supervisor might send to a subordinate employee in person and just say, hey, just checking in, you know, where are we on this? But when it comes in an email, it almost feels like it's being documented, right? Like that there's some sort of documentation occurring for an action coming down the road. And right. it, it, may be, it very well may be, but, um, but sometimes it's innocent as well. Oh, and that's an interesting point you raised, Connor, that because a lot of the conflict um, was based on written communications, there is abundant evidence for people to make claims on, right? Like, you know, the frivolous claims and very serious claims. Uh, and I had one client who got, um, who was issued a, a serious proposed disciplinary action for the client's lack of better characterization, um, immature behavior during Zoom meetings. Um, the client, uh, engaged in mockery sort of offline with the client's colleagues um, through text messages and emails about, you know, the things that were going on during the meeting. And then when the client received a proposed um, strong disciplinary action, the evidence file was replete with copies of those text messages, of those emails. Um, a lot of Zoom meetings are recorded. A lot of Zoom meetings are recorded. Uh, you know, thankfully at that time, well, I shouldn't say that. Thankfully, but understandably at the time, um, you know, it was still incredibly stressful and, and managers, supervisors remembered um, just how stressful early pandemic times were. Right. They could empathize. You, you know, I said at the very beginning of the show, like I could empathize with some of the stuff that my clients were experiencing because we were all collectively going through it uh, together as a workforce um, for those of us who were able to work remotely. Um, you know, I've, all, I've also, James, just seen a, a difference in, as we've gotten further along here, is where this, where the evidence in investigations is coming from. Yeah. Right. Well, there's so much written communication out there that, you know, it's easier to collect this evidence. I mean, one thing to remember is that gossip, rumor in the workplace, that's never gone away. It's just in a different form now. You know, think about it that way. Because, you know, if you have something to say to someone in the past, you know, you say it to their face. But now, I even whisper it. Yeah, yeah, right into their ear. But yep. but now, you know, there, there's gossip and rumor going on. But it's like in in a Teams chat. You know, there, there may be just a, a handful of employees, um, you know, chatting about a certain supervisor, a coworker, mm -hmm. in Teams. And you know, it's easier, I think, for agencies to prove that kind of misconduct because before you're just taking someone at their word. You know, assessing their credibility, things like that to determine whether, you know, this employee actually said what they're accusing him of saying or her of saying. Right. But now you've got the whole team's dialogue where someone could copy and paste it and throw it in an evidence file. Right. So where where are the conversations occurring, right? Um, yeah. Before, you know, whether they be innocent conversations, schemes, plots, um, where are they happening? And yeah. before it was a lot of the time in person, sometimes yeah. in email still, but also in person. And now, like Michael just said, I mean, it's uh, personal cell phones, uh, work cell phones, um, email, government email, yeah. personal email. And so I've seen the evidence collection efforts also broaden out where um, 
especially as inspector generals, will kind of, as a matter of course, go and scoop evidence from personal emails and personal cell phone uh, records, um, which may not have been necessary before because you had a wealth of testimony and people who mm -hmm. who could be interviewed with, with right. you know, with you, some ease. You make a good point in some of those more um, serious allegations being investigated by inspectors general, they have administrative subpoena authority. Yep. And so it's been a while on my end, but they can go subpoena records from private phone companies, um, probably from email servers, et cetera, yep. et cetera. So all that investigative work could be going on without the employee ever even knowing about it. So they think that by using private lines of communication that they are being you know, clever or flying under the radar or prudent, um, but in reality, you know, under the right circumstances, the IG could very well get their hands on it without the employee ever knowing until they're confronted with it during an investigative interview or as part of an evidence file to a disciplinary action. That's right. One right. thing that's missing, I think, from all this is that when, when, when the government looks at a certain line in an email and just takes it out and, and separates it from, from everything else, you, you miss a lot of the context in which, you know, these things were said. Or, or, or the intent behind them that, you know, you, you lose the, the tone and demeanor that comes with in-person interactions. So there's a whole lot of explaining to do in these investigations in which we represent federal employees. And, you know, that, that's part of our job to help them get that information out. Yeah, you kind of have to reconstruct the universe in which, uh, which those communications took place. Because like Michael said, it's an email can be taken out of context so so easily yeah um and you know people use shorthand and have kind of in comments that an outside observer wouldn't wouldn't necessarily understand so sometimes it does take some split yeah and of course there were some workplaces um where people never went remote i can think of uh, several you know like usda uh, agencies that were sure. in person the entire time because of the nature of their work and the VA, for example, too. Also, yeah, the Department of Veterans Affairs. Um, there were some agencies where the employees, by nature of the work, were unable to go to work. I think specifically of IRS. There were many, many IRS employees who could not lawfully perform their own work remotely from home. They needed to be um, in their office with access to their secure systems. They couldn't take taxpayer information home. So those people all experienced their own sets of challenges. Um, and in our next segment, we're going to talk about people returning to the workplace and the, the kinds of changes that they're experiencing, the kinds of um, changes that did occur that we think are going to continue. So with that, we're going to stop here for our final grade. When we return, we will wrap up this discussion. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. Looking for more ways to stay informed on federal news? Every Tuesday, the Fed Manager Newsletter delivers completely free, straightforward news to the federal community. The Fed Manager Newsletter features top news stories affecting the federal workforce, legislative updates impacting pay and benefits, understandable summaries of court decisions written by leading federal employment attorneys, and columns from across the federal community. Subscribe today at FedManager.com. Brought to you by the law firm of Shaw, Bransford & Roth, serving the federal community for 40 years. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Network. I'm James Heelan. I'm here with my colleagues, Connor and Michael from Shaw, Bransford & Roth. We're entering our last segment of the show, so let's dive right in. Now, we're, we're getting to the time where people are returning to the workplaces, and workplaces that um, never went remote are transitioning off of a lot of pandemic-era protocols and moving into what seems like maybe should feel like pre-pandemic work. Um, but the whole federal workforce is experiencing an awful lot of change. Yeah, that's right. And, and not every agency is the same. Um, some, like James said, were never remote. Some were remote briefly while they got their footing and then transitioned to a hybrid or flex schedule. Others are still fully remote. So, you know, it's uh, we're, we're everyone's getting their bearings. But one issue that that comes up a lot is this how to manage it from a manager's perspective. We used to manage an in-person workforce, then managed a fully remote workforce, and now is about doing a balancing act in a hybrid workforce and, and dealing with everyone's individual plans and preferences. I mean, people, people may have moved during the pandemic. Oh, uh, sure. 
Yeah. People may not have kept their move within the commuting area. Uh, people proved that they could work remotely. Do they want to give that up and move back to, you know, a big city like DC? Uh, people may have, and, you know, I hope they put it on their government ethics form, but uh, they may have opened a, you know, a little bit of a side business doing some moonlighting um, because of a more flexible work schedule. They might have childcare responsibilities. I mean, all these issues that have cropped up in an employee's life, which now gets more or less offloaded onto a manager's plate, right? right. Um, where they're trying to decide what does fall within the rules, what they can allow, what they can't allow. Um, and I, I think it's also leading to some frustration. Uh, I know that I, of course, I've seen managers get accused of retaliation um, for denying telework or denying um these benefits that existed during the pandemic right we have a workforce dynamic that was incredibly flexible where remote work and flexible schedules went hand in hand where uh, managers chains of command in early 2020 were incredibly understanding of employees needing to work non-contiguous eight or ten hour shifts working at odd hours of the day and night um, having to disappear here and there because of for example, child commitment or child care obligations. Um, and now that the United States is settling back into what we thought of as normal, um, you're right. I, I'm seeing also in my own work, lots of conflict between managers and subordinate employees, um, managers wanting to go back to what they're comfortable with and what they were used to up until 2020, employees who want to keep the same sort of um, flexibilities that they had in the earlier portion of the pandemic. And of course, what we also have now, um, more than two years into the pandemic, employees who have never worked in their workplace, right? Wow. Never yeah. met their colleagues in person. <laughs> right. They have never met the colleagues in person. I hadn't thought about that. And so, or their supervisors. Or their supervisors, right. And so now we're preparing for, uh, you know, it's like that, uh, it's like coming back to school, you know, like your junior year of high school and you have the people who transferred in right. over the summer. Yeah. And so a lot of you and your friends know each other and I've got these new faces to deal with and new personalities to learn. So it's, um, I think it's going to create a whole lot of disgruntlement in the federal workforce. People, you know, being used to and, and joining the workforce in these um, remote conditions and not you know, having a good vibe on their coworkers or their supervisors, they're going to come in and I, and I think they're going to be um, relatively unhappy. I think it's going to create a whole lot of um, new complaints and work. Yeah, th there's the, this, this conflict. I think it's inherent that people who viewed um, the telework and as a dispensation during the pandemic mm -hmm. to be a, just a temporary measure. Um, and like James mentioned, we're very understanding at first um, because of the collective, right? You know, I don't know what you want to call it, but the collective harm that it, was, that it was causing all of us. Um, and then for people who, yeah, sure, may have viewed it like that at first, but then it worked and now view it more as an entitlement. Um, and so that conflict between you know, the temporary nature and people who were hoping it would be permanent and may have assumed it would be permanent and made life decisions based on its permanency. Um, I think there's gonna there's gonna be a rupture. And one thing you know I haven't seen yet, but I think is is you know about to come is you know you got employees who um, th their work location is in Washington D.C., but then they're working out of their summer house up in Maine, and you know, they're, they're probably gonna have to return to work soon or at some point. And even in a hybrid model, um, you're gonna see some complaints out of that. Also, what I'm thinking you're gonna see more issues um, happen is, is investigations into how they've been, you know, living, you know, quite remote for quite some time. And, and I'm interested to see what's gonna happen. Right, to, with because that. As, as you know, employees do get cost of living adjustments, right? Yeah. And so, I will be, I'm, I'm with Michael there. I, I think it'll be interesting to see what the government does, if anything, with um, people who may be living in one place, but collecting cost of living adjustment uh, for, for somewhere completely different. I think I'm a little more optimistic about 
people returning to the workplace and um, being able to get along, especially with folks they haven't met before. But one of the things that I am worried about um, on behalf of the federal workforce is sort of loss of empathy that I am starting to see um, come up in my client matters. You know, in 2020, 2021, um, there were disciplinary actions coming across my desk for issues that arose early in the pandemic. You know, people really struggling with remote work, people um, being very worried about COVID in their in-person workplace and having conflicts around, mm-hmm. centered around those concerns. And in 2020 and in 2021, I think that deciding officials in those actions found it easy to empathize. And so I had a lot of clients whose response to these proposed disciplinary actions was apologetic. They were, they were mea culpas. They were a lot of that. asking for empathy. And, and I think managers were, hey, in discussion, and managers were more uh, willing to dispense that. Mm-hmm. But now, um, mid-2022, I still have a couple of actions that arise from... Um, matters early pandemic and managers are not (laughs) they are not empathizing i think uh people are forgetting what it was like during that very hectic incredibly stressful pre-vaccine time especially in the in-person workplaces and so i I think some of the upcoming challenges i'm going to have on behalf of clients is going to be recreating those emotional scenes for people yeah because the clients you know um don't have a dispute with whether they did or didn't do something it's about why they did it and why their agencies can be confident that you know barring another global pandemic it won't happen again do you think that lack of empathy is at all connected to the fact that people haven't seen as much of each other oh sure you know you know we often say um to clients, you know, if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think part of it is if you're a supervisor issuing or deciding on um, a proposed disciplinary action, you know, you, you're not seeing that person when you're issuing it to them or you're not um, seeing them when when you're you're telling them that they're going to be removed from the federal workforce. You're not living with the consequences mm. of your actions you know, and to the same extent that you would in person, you know, you're not seeing those tears flow down from someone's face because, you know, they're digital. Yeah, they're, they're digital. But, you know, it's good for supervisors and managers to remember, you know, these are people's lives. And, you know, it, there is still a pandemic out there and um, it's still a difficult time for people. You know, the the kind of foundational part of what we do is is. Uh, you know, a due process thing, which is that you want, you have to have the opportunity to invoke the discretion of an agency decision maker. If they're making a choice on whether or not to suspend, demote, terminate your employment. Right. You're talking about due process and discipline, disciplinary matters. Right. And so I'm not going to say empathy is, is the most important thing. It's about whether it happened, you know, what the law is, all that stuff. But also it is, if you if you show up to an oral reply and you are talking person to person with someone, mm-hmm. like James said earlier, it's about is this something that is going to happen again? Is this all these other considerations? And it's really hard to get that across to someone who doesn't want to listen. And so you can call it empathy, you can call it discretion, you can call it whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. But at the end of the day, it's mm-hmm. are you a, are you going to have an open mind? and listen to where someone's coming from. You know, in thinking about the disciplinary process and its impact um, during the pandemic and and what it might look like coming out of the pandemic, I think that doing remote replies, um, so for those of you listening who haven't been in a disciplinary process, um, most federal employees have the right to respond to proposed discipline, like proposed removal action, both verbally or orally and in writing. And in the oral presentations, um, sometimes agencies limit them to being by telephone, but most of the time agency deciding officials will receive the oral reply 
visually. And during the pandemic, we saw a lot of that obviously going to video. And I think video is going to stick around as we yeah. are now emerging. Sure. But um, I, I recommend people do it in person if they can. And you know what, James? Um, it just triggered something for me. Um, a lot of uh, actual collective bargaining agreements require um, or replies um, to be in person and, you know, a waiver from the employee. And I've seen employees who are in, you know, um, a bargaining unit status who, you know, haven't had the opportunity. So I, I'm kind of interested in how those mm -hmm. kind of agreements are going to change going forward. Well, well Michael mentioned something earlier about, um, you know, deciding officials who don't really take, there's no accountability when you're, you just show up on the screen, you listen, you might not even say a word yeah. during the entirety of, of the employee's reply um, when they're being fired or something really terrible happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do think, to Michael's point, you, you want to, if you can, uh, get in person with someone. Definitely. Um, engage them. Uh, don't give up the opportunity to, to have a dialogue with someone. <laughs> um, because you know your face is in their hands, and but they should there should be accountability on their end as well on on making that decision in a just way. Right. I, this is not a time I don't think for uh, federal employees to lean into the informality and flexibility that has come about from the, the pandemic experience. So one thing I want to get in before we end our show is the the timing matches up. We're coming out of these pandemic times, and we also have. American Systems Protection Board. We have yep. three members of the board. Yep. Um, we haven't had any since I think 2018. No, I think no, it was January, January, 2017. January 2017. Yeah. Oh, no, we, we lost a that. forum in January 2017. That's right. And then that, Mark yeah. Robbins um, stuck around for another year. That's right. But it, the board That's was true. lacking quorum since um, right before the Trump administration. And now we have three members. And so board, issue, board decisions are issuing. That's um, right. They have, um, for those of you who are paying attention to the appointments clause issue at the board, um, they have ratified the appointments of administrative judges. And so I've noticed a lot of uptick in my MSPB activity. Oh, yeah, for sure. And and there's also just the, the fact that a lot of people have been waiting for decisions from the board for a long, right. long time. People who skipped the pandemic, who were terminated prior to the pandemic, and who have been at home waiting on their appeal to be adjudicated by the, the board this entire time, who now may be returning to work if they're able to prevail. Right. They're, or, you know, what, what's that going to do to, you know, their positions that are no longer in effect, too? Not even close to being, uh, right? they've been filled or filled, yeah. the agency has moved on. There's two levels of new leadership there, um, two administrations later. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I'd really be curious to be in those offices of general counsel and human resources offices as they're preparing workforces to accept returning employees who, you know, were removed years ago. So unjustly, you know, that could be a topic of a whole another show all its own. But we don't have time for that today. That's all we have for now. I want to thank Connor and Michael for joining me today. And thanks to all of you for listening. Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Branson & Roth. Have a great weekend.